0: Hello. This is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University, and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm here today with my friend Beth Hillman, uh, the until recently the president of Mills College in Oakland, California, and now the head of the Memorial at 9/11 Memorial and Museum. Beth, great to have you on the podcast.
1: Good to be here, David.
0: Could you start by just telling us a little bit about your own background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school?
1: I grew up not too far from where you are now um, in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, in the South Hills. My dad worked for U.S. Steel. My mom was a dietitian at McKeesport Hospital. Um, we lived in one of the many you know, suburbs that were built outside the city after World War II. Um, and my family kind of reflected the Rust Belt, um, uh, both my mom and my dad's uh, families worked in in steel and um, industry, you know, heavy industry, sort of in the in the western Pennsylvania. And then um, my three brothers and my sister and I all left for, um, you know, uh, different opportunities in different parts of the country. Uh, although we all feel great fondness for Pittsburgh, so. Uh, but I grew up um, in the South Hills. Uh, I uh, I went to college on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. So, I was, you know, my sister and I were the fourth and fifth of uh, of my parents' kids to go to college. I was aware of that, so I was looking for ways to, um, like so many students, um, to finance the education that I was looking for. And I was happy to have the chance to um, to be an Air Force officer after I graduated too. So and the, so I served in the Air Force for seven years on active duty and then um, separated from the service, went to law school, got a degree in history and, and moved into academics for, for a while. And now I'm in a different kind of education, you know, in a museum and a memorial.
0: Great. And just uh, in that journey, tell us a little wh- where, where did you decide to go to college and and what was it that led you to uh, enlist in the Air Force to, to, to finance that?
1: Well, really, I was interested in um, scholarship support for going to the university that I wanted to. And so that drew me initially um, to the to the potential for um, an ROTC scholarship because the ROTC scholarships were portable. So I could take them with me wherever and it would cover the full tuition um, with a living stipend at the time. Um and, uh, I, you know, I was interested in leaving Western Pennsylvania. I loved it, but I hadn't really traveled all that much or been outside. So I looked, um, outside and to be honest, it was probably basketball that led me to Duke. Um, when I was young, uh, my brothers were big basketball fans and I, um, Duke had a great team in the late seventies that I was, um, interested in. And I, and, and and then I also wanted to go to a school that had strong engineering and non-engineering programs because the Air Force awarded scholarships in specific degrees that they anticipated having, you know, needs in. And a lot of scholarships were given out in electrical engineering. So I... I said sure. Uh, electrical engineering sounds good to me. I had been science and math oriented in high school, and uh, and I I didn't want to go to a school like it seemed to me many um, great engineering schools were didn't have strong liberal arts programs and didn't have uh, the full breadth of. Um, other uh, areas of study that I was also interested to explore. So I was grateful to have the chance to go to Duke, where I thought I'd have the best of both, a great engineering school and also a great um, liberal arts and, uh, you know, sort of broad-based uh, foundational education there. So with a great basketball team.
0: And did you stick with electrical engineering as, as no, your major? I-
1: no, I wasn't a very good electrical engineer, and um, it wouldn't have been a good choice for the world for me to stay an engineer, I don't think. Though I did learn a lot about how to think, um, and uh, and I loved the classes that I took, um, although my favorite class was a material science mechanical engineering course, which I found just uh, so intriguing about the materials of which the world is built and how we sort of manage those and the systems they're in. But, um, but my my first assignment in the Air Force... Um, I. I when I was in college, I, I had some different experiences um, with the army, with the, um, the Strategic Defense Initiative Organization, um, which was an exciting and um, great learning experience for me at the Pentagon. But but my first job as an officer in the Air Force was in space operations, um, and I wasn't doing you know uh, design work or you know engineering uh, product development or um, systems. I, I was actually operating systems um, to support, uh, you know, war fighters and, um, you know, intelligence collectors and all the other folks um, around the world who were working on that. Uh, so, I, you know, I used big electrical systems, uh, but I didn't, uh, I wasn't an electrical engineer when I was in the Air Force, so I didn't stick. I didn't, the engineering part didn't stick.
0: And and what was it that led you, because um, it sounds like you got some really interesting assignments to in the Air Force, what led you um, to leave there and and pursue law school and then history? And, and was that something that did the, did the GI bill or, or the, your military service help to pay for that subsequent education?
1: Yeah, the, the GI bill, the GI bill paid for my dad's, um, education. And I actually, my dad's, um, because he was in the army air forces during world war II. And I chose the air force because of his air force experience. Actually, I didn't know a lot about the different services and I had to choose one of the services, um, you know, to apply to, um, and I, I loved the Air Force service that I had, and I really threw myself into it um, You know, from the start. Uh, you have sort of a um, two years at the time, we had two years to figure out if we wanted, before we incurred a service commitment. Um, so the Air Force would have uh, paid for a scholarship for my first two years of college. And then if I had decided I didn't wanna be in the Air Force, I could have separated at that point and um, and just continued on my own. Um, so I wanted to learn a lot in those first two years. And I, I loved what I learned. I had a lot of responsibility early, a lot of leadership training and opportunities. And I met a great diversity of people that I would never have met otherwise. Uh, and then I then I worked in space operations and I wanted to go back to school. So your question, yes, did the Air Force help me with the next set of training? For sure. I, um, I actually wanted to get a master's degree, not so much because I was driven to go back to school because um, I didn't. I actually didn't want to be in school forever. Um, I liked. I liked working. I liked having an impact and being out there in the mix, but I knew to get promoted in the Air Force, I needed a master's degree and a lot of, um, a lot of young officers did that, uh, you know, part-time and through correspondence and in different ways. Um, but I, we didn't have remote learning in quite the way we do right now, but we called it, you know, correspondence courses and those kinds of things. But I wanted to go back full-time because I, I was hungry for a a more intensive um, experience that I hadn't had a chance to have. And, um, so I applied to the air force Academy and they sponsored me for a master's degree in history, um, and route to teaching at the academy and my space operations colleagues were a bit aghast that i was going to go teach history um, but I was insistent. And uh, initially I had wanted to study overseas in a foreign language through a special scholarship program that the Air Force offered, um, which was designed to train young officers for future leadership positions by giving them a chance to study in a foreign country in another language. And I loved that idea, But, um, but that didn't come through in time and I was ready to go. So I got the academy to sponsor me and I went to the University of Pennsylvania to study. And one reason I chose Penn is because it was in a city. At that point, I had been, um, you know, in uh, Durham, North Carolina, and I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I had been um, in Colorado, uh, which I loved very much, Colorado Springs. But I hadn't really lived in a big city, and I wanted to be in a city, so I looked at universities that were in uh larger urban areas and um i was drawn to philadelphia and to penn because of the that uh the the strengths of their history department in particular i had loved my second major as an undergrad was history i had really loved that i had particularly loved what we called at the time social history sort of history from the bottom up not grand political and military history but history of people and cultures and uh Communities um, and movements, and so I was drawn to that, and so I went to Penn to study. So I was in Philadelphia for a year, and then I came back to teach at the Air Force Academy. Um, and while I was in Philadelphia, it was a uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of the scales fell away, and um, doors opened up to me uh, intellectually and otherwise. And I came out, um, which made it um, challenging to decide to stay in the Air Force because uh, at the time the don't ask, don't tell policy was in effect and um and then eventually i left um and i left I was, I was glad to leave on my own terms, but I know that was a luxury that many other people did not have who realized that they were part of the LGBTQ community while they were in the service. Um, But I, um, at the Air Force Academy, uh, which is a beautiful campus in the foothills of Colorado, uh, Colorado Springs, um, there's a one main classroom and office building. And on the, the sixth floor, there were big signs of where our offices were above the elevator or the stairs, if you took them and you came out and it said, the, the sort of values of the Air Force Academy and a motto of the Air Force. And it said, integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. And I would look at that every day and I just struggled with that. That integrity first piece seemed like I, I was not, um, you know, I couldn't be uh, uh, who I was and I couldn't sort of reckon with the, um, what I was, it it made me question what I was doing in the Air Force too. Uh, You know, um, I had, when i was a space operations officer uh, we had warrior days where we would wear battle dress uniforms and we had a general talk to us one time who said the mission of the air force is to kill people and blow things up And while I don't believe that that's um, the only mission of the Air Force or how many other um, senior officers would describe what the Air Force does among the different services, and I believe a lot of people um, do incredibly important work in the service, I just thought, is that really what I want to do at this point? So I became, I think... Later than other people, more reflective about what I wanted to do next because of my personal circumstances, but also because of my sense of what I, what kind of impact I wanted to have. So at that point, I, um, I actually paid the Air Force back to leave. A few weeks early so that I could start law school on time and decided to study law and history and try to buy a little time to figure out what I wanted to do next, because I really had thought I would have a career in the Air Force. And also because I thought that um, studying law might give me a chance to have uh, a different kind of impact than I would studying history. But I really did love history. So I was grateful to have the chance to do that, too.
0: And, And where did you end up studying law and history?
1: I went to Yale uh, because I thought I might want to be a law professor, and it seemed they all went to Yale. So um, <laughs> I, ought to, I ought to follow them there. And because there were, was a history department that had uh, uh, professors with whom I really wanted to work, because I had begun to realize that in graduate school, the impact of your advisor, um, your dissertation advisor, and the individual historians that you work with, it has a big impact on the trajectory of your work and um, and what you might uh, learn and do. And so I, I, I thought yeah. was a great place to go plus the, the law school had such a strong reputation i was glad to have the chance to go to yale law too
0: and were you doing a jd and a phd or was it how did that program work
1: exactly I was I was working towards a JD and a PhD so I was in residence at Yale for four years um, and worked on all the coursework and then I um, then I, I looked for jobs in history and in law uh, teaching and I ended up in, in a law school at Rutgers and I finished my dissertation in that first year which was actually 2001 that's um, the the attacks on the world Trade centers and the Pentagon and then the uh, flight that went down in central Pennsylvania flight 93 that September 11th took place as I was finishing my dissertation uh, I had I had just left New York actually and moved to Philadelphia at that point
0: and and what um at what stage in your career did you think you might want to become a college president
1: <laughs> I I don't know if there was any I, I don't know that I really thought about becoming a college president um it's funny I saw that on your list of questions and I thought how will I answer that one so I had always had leadership roles um it's uh <laughs> I I was um and I was drawn to institution building. I, I liked to figure out how to pull things together. And I liked to move institutions and organizations forward and sort of start initiatives and do things. I had always done that. I was a student conductor of um, our jazz ensemble and our marching band and concert band when I was in high school. I was the captain of the basketball team. I was a the cadet commander of our ROTC unit. I was the area commander of a service society for North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. When I was in air force ROTC, I, I just had always done things like that. Um, and, uh, and then when I joined a faculty, I was focused on, um, uh, initiating programs, but init- I wasn't drawn to academic leadership at first. But pretty soon I was because I um, I realized it was a way to have an impact on the institution and sort of shape the environment for a lot of different, um, the, the, the relationship with the community and the institution, the college or university, and more. So, I, so because I was teaching in law schools, I moved into leadership roles in law schools first. And then I missed teaching undergraduates. <laughs> I was... Um, uh, law students are amazing, uh, um, but narrower and already sort of professionally directed. And the, um, the breadth and the, um, I don't know, the chaos of undergraduate education was appealing to me. And so I was interested in having a chance to be connected to undergraduates again. I had loved teaching the undergraduates I taught at the Air Force Academy. Um, And I was glad to have another chance to do that. And I, at that point too, um, when I, when I, and I didn't apply broadly to college leadership positions, I applied to Mills College because uh, it was in the Bay Area where I wanted to stay because my family was rooted there. And um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to, uh, to try to make a a geographic change. So the opportunity to be at Mills, uh, which intrigued me for a lot of particular reasons, um, was, was right there. And I was glad to be able to take it.
0: So for those who aren't familiar with Mills, can you tell us a little bit about its history and what was it, given that you weren't applying broadly for presidencies, what was it about the opportunity at Mills that attracted you?
1: Well, first, it was in the right place. So as I said, I mean, that's a real thing for most of yep. us with our lives as um, as things click along and the, you know, the things happen that you expect and the things happen that you don't expect. I, I also... Uh, Mills was uh, a women's college. It was uh, the first women's college west of the Mississippi. I was an odd candidate for women's college in many respects. I mean, I described to you some of the things I did. I was in the Air Force. I was in law school. I was an engineer. I I was the only woman in the jazz ensemble um, at Duke when I went. Um, I, I had been in a lot of Environments that were dominated by men. But I had increasingly been interested in the impact of gender discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity and all those different pieces. As I started to study that as a student and a historian and a, a legal reformer, one of the things I didn't mention that I've stayed involved in is military justice reform and uh, trying to figure out how to build criminal justice systems and disciplinary systems in the armed forces that. Respect the rights of individuals and also enable the military to uh, pursue its goal of good order and, and discipline. Um, so I, um, you know, I I was um, I was drawn to Mills because it was so different. In part, I think that uh, I, I had not gone to a women's college, and it was it was sort of breathtaking. The um, the uh, the dedication and the love for the particular small liberal arts college which is also what mills um was a small liberal arts college the kind of devotion that that inspires and the people who attended those institutions was intriguing to me i wanted to better understand that i also loved that mills continued to be a women's college for women and and self-identified women and gender non-binary students at the undergrad level but all students at the graduate level and I was intrigued by the challenge they faced economically. I thought Mills was already serving the students of the future, the, a, a huge uh, uh, breadth of so- students from different socioeconomic statuses, um, great racial diversity that really reflected the state of California in all of its diversity rather than uh, the the students who I had previously associated with a small college experience, more elite. Um, whiter and, uh, you know, more privileged students than I was seeing at Mills. And so I was intrigued by, wow, can we figure out a way to uh, actually enable a college like this to thrive in a high cost um, urban area like the Bay Area, which has a very strong public education system that draws many students who might otherwise be interested in a small college experience like Mills. So it it was the the particular distinctive nature of mills as a, um, as an institution, not because I was familiar with it, but because I respected what they had done and what it inspired in the people who were there. And also the, um, the particular economic and, um, institutional challenges of trying to find a way forward in a pretty crowded higher ed market.
0: And I'm, I'm curious in some ways, I think you were a natural fit, even though you, as you say, you were unconventional, you, you, had a lot of leadership roles you would broken a lot of glass ceilings I'm guessing along the way in terms of uh, of being a, a you know a female leader in in non-traditional settings but the fact that you hadn't had any history in liberal arts institutions and were coming from a law school background those would both be pretty unconventional for the choice so do you have a sense of what was that Mil- that led mills to choose you um you know, for that role at that time?
1: First, I think that uh, I, I'm um, I'm, re- I'm a reasonably convincing historian. I um, I, I genuinely love history, um, and I think historians are good fits for institutions that have a strong sense of identity uh, because of the sensitivity to the past and the presentness, the recognition of the presentness of the past. And that's certainly true at small colleges. So I think that was helpful. I, I did understand the Bay Area and. Um, And I I think that I was was beginning to develop at that point in time, a good set of listening skills. And I think that my ability to hear what they wanted um, and understand uh, was also important, I think, to the search committee and the board, because they realized they needed leadership it wasn't that others had not seen the potential for change or opportunity at Mills. They had, and they certainly had addressed many challenges and made many um, important changes and and more, but Mills needed to make bigger changes in order to be sustainable. And the board recognized that. And I think they needed someone who would be able to implement those changes, not just someone who could identify what those changes might be, but someone who could listen to the community. And, um, and so in that sense, my lack of familiarity, you know, with that community itself, And the the reality that I would come in and listen to people uh, and then figure out what we were going to do next. I think that maybe that made them think I'd have a better shot than um, a different kind of candidate.
0: Great. Well, you, you mentioned that one of the things that attracted you to it, which wouldn't be true for necessarily all candidates looking at presidencies, was that there were real challenges um, and, and that the board was aware of that. So can you give a sense of where, where Mills was when you joined? What, what what was the situation? Did you have a full picture when you were coming on board? And what was your sort of initial assessment of, of, of the role?
1: yeah that that, that um, last part about did I know what I was getting into? I think the answer is always no on that I mean and it's not it's not for lack of trying for the search committee or the institution, and it's not because I was unusually dense in uh, perceiving what they were telling me, but it's just so hard to fully reckon with uh, the state of an institution when you're in this compressed time frame when you're uh, making a decision and they're making a decision right it's a It's a mutual discernment process that you enter into when you consider joining as the leader of an institution that you've not been a part of. So, um, I, you know, I did, I knew a lot about Mills, um, financial situation and that was the primary crisis that they were facing. Although there were plenty of others, the challenges around equity and access, the, um, the challenges around, uh, you know, anti-black racism, challenges around, uh, sexual orientation, discrimination, and gender identity, um, the, the um, all of those issues, um, were very present and real at Mills, like they are at so many um, campuses. Uh, We had a, uh, you know, a a, a very, um, we had a different kind of culture than other institutions, but the same challenges. Uh, You know, no matter how an institution deals with those particular sort of reckonings, it's not easy and those are real. But Mills, on top of that, had a profound um, financial challenge in that we had been running structural deficits for years, meaning that our Ordinary expenses outpaced our revenues year after year, so we had not been able to invest in the campus, meaning the people of the campus, the the, the staff and the faculty who we employ, but also the physical plant of the campus. It's a big campus, 135 acres, um, 10,000 trees, 65 buildings, um, a very valuable property um, in East Oakland, a neighborhood that, that was in a... Um, bordered by uh, some really challenged communities, economically challenged by by violence and crime um, and uh, the inequity that comes uh, so often in big cities, but also right next to very affluent communities nearby in Oakland. So it was a complicated place economically to try to figure out how to move ahead with a lot of resources that people deemed very valuable and they were correct, but not resources that we could liquidate to pay for the things that you have to pay for to be great in higher ed. And we also were a part of Uh, an entire higher education landscape that, like the rest of um, the United States, in many respects, uh, we were seeing accelerating inequities and, you know, more and more resources going to a small number of very elite institutions and and other kinds of institutions languishing. So I knew there was a deep set of financial challenges at Mills, and I I knew we'd have to figure out a different way forward in order to address those. So that part I did know. Great.
0: And so, As you know, one of the sort of shared histories that Chatham and Mills had, we were an all-women's college for most of our history, and just the year before I joined, had made the tough decision to go all-gender, as had, you know, by that point, a majority of all the single-sex institutions. Was that part of the option set that you were looking at? You mentioned, the obviously, the deep attachment to Mills' history, but... I'm, a, I'm assuming that would be one of the options you and the board, the institution would have looked at. And can you say, you know, what were the things that that led ultimately not to take that route as the potential way forward? That,
1: that definitely, I think for any institution that faces enrollment challenges that is excluding um, a significant number of potential students from being considered for admission, I think that that considering, well, should we be admitting those students is always going to be on the table. I think it had been in the past. Um, and it certainly continued to be at Mills. It was a particular third rail, um, for us because of the strike at Mills being the signature moment of Mills history. So in 1990, the board and the administration had decided to, uh, to, uh, admit men as undergraduate students. And they went out with that decision and the, um, uh, and it, it led to uh, just a, a real uh, powerful cultural moment where the Mills community went on strike against this decision. Students protested, alumni came back to campus, the faculty and staff uh, also got behind those protests. Literally, the president lost control of the ability to communicate. She couldn't get into her office. I talked to alums who were actually in the president's office at that time. One said, I still have stationary. We're inclined to <laughs> in the window. Um and it was uh, it was you know better dead than co-ed and the it made national news um, it, it, so that had a huge imprint that that decision lasted 16 days the chair of the board um, uh, opted not to say, to continue I I the, the president at the time who was an incredibly um, uh, capable and um, uh, dignified and amazing leader, Mary Metz. Um, I talked to her about how that how that all happened, um, and she's remained a supporter of Mills. Always was, and was a supporter right through the time when we merged with Northeastern University, which maybe we'll get to. But, but we it would have been it would have provoked a tremendous response uh, at Mills. Although certainly some people thought we should actually. Uh, admit men um, to our undergraduate programs and remove the gender exclusivity of our undergraduate programs. Others thought it would be such a culture change. It would, it would be worse than closing the institution. But I think ultimately, and you know, boards, boards are like all governance um, uh, organizations, you know, they're, they, they, they really, they act. And it's hard to say why exactly they do all the things that they do and everyone has their own considerations, but ultimately Having a small liberal arts college that was open to all genders with a particular range of academic programs that Mills had did not seem like a recipe for success, um, you know, with simply changing the, the uh, gender exclusion on our admissions. So if the board had thought that would be the right thing to do, I think it would have become more likely as a solution. But it didn't seem that that was actually the best thing for us to do next um, as, as compared to other options
0: so as as you were looking at those options what were the things what was it that you initially focused on as as a potential way to financial sustainability and at what stage did you and the board decide you know a strategic partnership was going to be the way forward
1: you know, David. As I look back, I feel like we did everything. Um, uh, you know, we tried everything. Uh, it's a, a bit of a kitchen sink approach in many respects, although not everything at once. Um, we and many of this had happened before I came to Mills, so I don't think I, and I don't have I don't have a, you know a complete catalog or purchase on all of those things that had happened. But Mills worked very hard to increase fundraising. It, it worked to build partnerships with other institutions. It worked to expand the number of students we could admit by diversifying the uh, the pipelines working with different international partners at different points in time, working with different um, pathways to college admissions, different kinds of communities, trying to double down on the recruiting resources we would spend in areas where we thought we would be most successful. Um, uh, uh, you know, we became test optional. We, uh, we, um, we did a tuition reset where we, uh, we recognized that, A huge number of families decided college is unaffordable because of the published sticker price. And so we opted for a tuition reset because so many of our students were receiving financial aid. Um, We thought it would help for families to know that what they would pay is not that initial very high undiscounted um, rate of tuition and fees that they would see when they looked at colleges and at us as a college compared to others. We 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 built new academic programs. We launched an online degree program. We we uh, added more professional programs. In some cases, we sunset programs. We uh, went through a financial emergency. We actually declared a financial emergency because when I started. Our deficit was actually higher. Our deficit uh, for the budget the board has a, had adopted the summer before I started um, was actually higher than the line of credit that we had. So we had to make immediate cuts uh, in order to um, to address just being able to have the cash. This was not a balanced budget, but we just needed to, to have, we, you know, liquidity is something that, I don't know if we talk a lot about that in college president training um, to the extent there is any, but, you know, you can't pay people with the leaves on the trees. Um, And so your ability to have access to the cash that you need in order to run your operations is a very real concern. And the academic calendar creates some ups and downs um, in terms of cash flow that every uh, academic leader has to reckon with eventually. And usually you use a line of credit to manage that throughout the year. But our line of credit had become a way to actually reckon with a structural deficit. But my my initial encounter with that was it wasn't enough. We would run out of money before the end of the year. So we We in that very first year really had to figure out first, what are we going to cut immediately um, so that we can uh, so that we can get by this year? And then what are we going to cut in the out years? Because that deficit wasn't staying flat. It was increasing dramatically. The projections were for it to get so much bigger in the next two or three years that we would have we, we would have been in arrears. So. So we looked at what we might do to try to stabilize and we adopted a financial stabilization plan. And part of that was we had to declare a financial emergency under our um, our bylaws. If we declare a financial emergency, we could restructure in ways that we couldn't otherwise do that. And so in conversation with our faculty, we did do that and made some very tough decisions to close some programs and, and actually lay off tenured faculty who were teaching in those programs. Um, so that restructuring bought us some time and we continued to look at other options. We had always looked at partnerships. You said, "Why did we decide to, you know, pursue uh, the the merger that we ended up uh, um, implementing with Northeastern when we realized that last year?" But we um, we had been partners with many different institutions over the time. Um, and what what changed during the time that I was there is we started to realize the extent to which a partnership needed to come to fruition in order to reckon with those underlying financial challenges, because. For Mills, it wasn't simply the cash flow issues in terms of our, our annual budget that we had to reckon with. It was also the deferred maintenance on a very big and old campus. Uh, and in terms of sustainability, we weren't even able to do some of the things that we wanted to do to reduce our energy usage usage and, and to um, become more economical and more environmentally, um, you know, what we all wanted to be able to do because of the financial challenges of the institution. We we couldn't even do some of the really easy things that were out there. And that was just not a sustainable place to be, either environmentally or um, uh, just bare bones economically. So we were realizing we had to consider more thoroughgoing partnerships with other institutions, and not only um, not only uh, exchanges and you know sharing programs and joint recruiting and the kinds of things that we had
0: long been doing. And just just to put this in context, particularly for those who aren't as familiar with higher ed, one of the things that it may strike some people as odd is it even with all of those financial challenges, Mills had not just a very valuable campus, but a pretty substantial endowment relative to many small privates. And yet that because you're only drawing on it at a at a you know, I'm not sure what your rate was, five percent or their thereabouts, right? Is it the fact that was there doesn't mean you're financially viable.
1: Very true, David. And um, I, uh, the other challenge is not only that you can't. The, the endowment is not an account a bank account that you can go to to cover expenses but it also isn't available for all expenses it's restricted so our endowment was over most endowments in any case it depends on the institution but our endowment was almost completely composed of restricted funds that we could only use for specified purposes um, which is because people had been generous to mills over the years had had loved experience they'd had there had wanted to ensure it would be possible for other students in perpetuity so one of the best things about the merger with Northeastern is that all of those donors who made gifts to Mills with an eye towards ensuring that their gift would be used for the purposes for which they established it in perpetuity, that's happening now because Northeastern um, stepped into the shoes of Mills with respect to its obligation to meet the restrictions on all of those gifts. And Northeastern has the resources and the liquidity to meet those other operating expenses that donors didn't particularly want to pay for, like replacing the HVAC unit and the boilers and trimming the trees um, that are um, dropping branches in in the wind and, um, you know, sealing the building so that we could actually uh, reckon with the smoke on the campus. Before COVID was the um, air risk on the campus, it was smoke um, in the Bay Area. So we needed to do a lot in our physical and tech information Infrastructure, And we weren't able to do that. Um, and yet we still had money for scholarships for students who wanted to study whichever particular field, um, art or philosophy or, uh, languages or, um, uh, science. And so that was, that, that's a great thing, but th- the endowment is not, it, it's not a life raft, um, when your operating expenses are not balanced.
0: And so, um, you had joined in 2016 at what stage in that process did did you and the board begin to to come to that realization you needed a a deeper form of partnership and how did you go about initiating that process
1: well first the first plan was a more um sort of urgent and emergent plan which was the that liquidity crisis of my the first year and then um uh, ensuring that liquidity crisis didn't continue into the out years. So initially, we made just some very painful and difficult cuts for that first year, and then the second year, we declared a financial emergency, made some additional bigger structural changes with like nine steps in a financial stabilization plan, and we communicated extensively to the full community, our alumni, um, our um, our students, our staff, and our faculty. And that's hard because honestly, students are there to get an education. You know, they don't really want to hear about the finances of the college, um, but they but it, they obviously affect them. And and there are there are there are, are um, you know there are primary stakeholders. There are customers. There are clients. Whatever the right language is to describe that, you know, they're the people that we don't exist without them. So we did communicate a lot to students too around this, and we made decisions that were based on student demand. So the programs that we sunset were programs that had very little student interest, actually, and affected very few students. But you know, few is not none, and um, uh, you know, and it's people that you're talking about, and so. So that was initially what we did, and we continued to pursue partnerships. Um, we in that in that first or second year, we also signed a memorandum of collaboration with UC Berkeley, who had long been a partner of Mills, and actually the College of California, the initial founders of the UC system, were friends of the Mills, um, Cyrus and Susan Mills, who who established a seminary for young women in um, in. In, uh, in California, having purchased it from Mary Atkins, who was an entrepreneur of an existing school. Um, and then they built it into what became Mills College later in the 19th century. So really Mills and UC Berkeley had been contemporaries for a long time. And, um, but Berkeley had obviously grown to be much, much bigger um, than <laughs> Mills. And, uh, and also had an insatiable demand for the education it was offering because of the the, the cost structure and this the, and yet Berkeley was struggling financially in many respects too, like other public institutions who no longer, uh, uh, you know, benefited from the extensive state support that the had, had been true earlier in, you know, in the mid 20th century that faded by the late 20th century. And then the 21st century really brought huge challenges for us there across public higher education too. So, so we were working with Berkeley, um, uh, and we were working with other institutions too. We had many, many conversations with partnerships. We, we met with boards, we talked about. Um, and the other thing that we did at the same time too was we we thought about what assets we had that we could um, use to support the core academic mission of the college. And the land that Mills was on was the primary thing. I initially could not believe there wasn't a way we could monetize the land that we had. But wow, building is very expensive Um, the entitlement process in the Bay Area especially is very lengthy. So if you don't have capital, um, being able to build or realize revenue streams, it's not impossible, but it's actually, it's not fast. And uh, in fact, it's it's quite slow and capital intensive to realize that. So if you're an institution without a lot of capital resources, it's very difficult to envision a path to um, to using real estate as a way to support uh, core academic enterprises. Plus, if you don't have a campus, um, you know how does your residential college continue to operate? Now, institutions are making this decision. Now, they're deciding they don't need a campus in order to operate. But Mills is very much identified. It's a bucolic campus with um, a- an incredible feel of a refuge in a dense urban area. That um, and it's uh, it's stunningly beautiful. So the and the highest and best use of that land is as a campus. So. Uh, it's not easy to carve out a piece of that and decide to offer it to another potential user when it would undermine your ability to continue to use that um, space. And actually, that's not the most that's not the most economically viable use of the space anyway. So we throughout this time. So the first year crisis, second year continued crisis. But a few years we bought some time and then we really worked hard on a partnership with UC Berkeley because we thought that was our best um, option for uh, uh, you know uh, we, enrollment was a challenge we weren't attracting enough students who wanted to study well berkeley is a few miles away with you know no enrollment challenge whatsoever but a space challenge we thought it was a great match because it was difficult to build more residential space for students in berkeley or more space for labs and more space for staff housing more space for faculty to do the research they want to do we thought it was a good fit and so did so did berkeley but working with the state institution is is um, is difficult. The governance structures of state institutions are um, are unwieldy in many in many cases, and the ability of the a public university to allocate resources to do some of the things that you you need to do and as you work towards a potential merger of, of campuses and a sort of um, uh, growth opportunity for that larger university. It's tricky. And so ultimately, we weren't able to realize that um, that kind of thoroughgoing partnership with Berkeley that we thought we would. Plus, then the pandemic hit, and the pandemic hurt us more, much like, uh, you know, it, it landed differently on different institutions. It landed... Um, it landed hard on us in part because our students are not that different than the community college students in some respects who, who uh, you know, California is still working to recover um, from the, the, the uh, the the suppression of uh, enrollment at community colleges that happened during the pandemic, because so many students from more challenged economic backgrounds just couldn't continue to study. They went to work or they stayed home, um, and they they didn't they didn't return to our campuses after the pandemic, and they couldn't stay during that time. So our enrollment was uh, made worse by the pandemic, and in some ways the the uh, you know the. Uh, the federal aid that was made available was was a huge help to us and it enabled us not to make the dramatic layoffs that we thought we would have to make the payroll protection program um, and the you know the federal support that we got was a huge help to us uh, during that period of time. But as the pandemic wore on, and as we looked ahead, we just didn't see that we could continue to admit undergraduates to a four-year experience. You know, when you admit an undergraduate to your college, you're telling them they're going to be able to finish there. That's what they expect. So if you don't see a path to, to um, sustainability for at least four to six years ahead of you, to continue to admit students um, seemed to us unconscionable. And so we made an announcement. To, uh, that we wouldn't admit another class and we were going to pursue uh, partnerships instead and we would work to to teach out you know to continue to support the degree completion of the students we had now by helping them transfer as needed or accelerate and finish their degrees with mills before we would have to no longer function as a degree granting institution and once that happened more partners came forward so we created a process to actually vet those potential partnerships um, and made and were and and were able to uh to, to settle on northeastern as a as a merger partner for us.
0: And can you say a bit more about that process? A, a couple of things. So first, I would think it was a, it, I understand the ethics of not admitting a class, but also once you've made that decision and that announcement, obviously that really accelerates the timeline because if the partnership doesn't work, there, there's no plan B other than, than closing. The decision to first Rather than say we're in the market for a partner before you decided not to admit, was that just with COVID there was just no time to do it, or what, what was what was the rationale there? We
1: we could uh, I, I think you know you make a good point. You always have options. I, I mean it's not true that there aren't uh, there's only one choice. There's never just one choice. There's different things that you can do. We had worked so hard with um, with our primary um, uh, focus on UC Berkeley that that was actually consuming pretty much all of our administrative resources. We were focused on making that happen, and it was complicated. Um, there's a lot of disclosure that's involved. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of relationships to be built. There are a lot of um, questions to be answered. Um, just the sheer actually paperwork, um, the electronic version of the paperwork that comes with these kind of exploratory conversations is extraordinary. And this is a school that's still, we're just trying to run, you know, we're trying to run a regular operations. So it's almost as if you were to do this and you were with the business, you'd, you'd create another wing, you know, you'd create a new department to actually engage in this kind of exploration, but we didn't have the luxury of doing that. So sort of, um, and we were also uh, engaged with, um, you know, the primary uh, uh, support that we had during this was from legal counsel with experience in in higher ed uh, mergers, acquisitions, partnerships, so that we could start to understand how this was gonna play out. Uh, and so our board could understand it, how, how it would play out and what would be possible, how we could protect the interests of the college moving ahead as we started to engage in these conversations. Um, and the, the, um, the other thing that we were busy doing, rather than putting out a big RFP, say, um, uh, we thought really the the RFP would have. Because we were in such crisis, if we had issued a request for proposals to actually, do you want to do you want to become, you know, quietly or loudly, we had said that. We thought we were already in such crisis that it wouldn't necessarily really communicate much more than what we were already communicating. We had declared a financial emergency in 2017. We had hit the pandemic. We had talked a lot about running um, uh, uh, challenging places. We had sold a rare book for a world record-setting price to help fund our operating deficit. I mean, we were taking extraordinary steps that demonstrated we were were perilously close to not being able to continue our operations. Uh, So until we actually said we're not going to continue to admit new students, we didn't think there was too much we could do that would demonstrate quite the place we were in. But of course, you know, no one wants to feel desperate in these conversations. You know, you don't want to put out. um, It's it's this funny balance of uh, the transparency that everybody wants with also maintaining a sense of possibility and what really are real options that are out there, but not necessarily options that that Certainly, people don't agree on, but they're not necessarily the ones that they think uh, you know uh, should be there and
0: And so once the the deal with Berkeley it was clearly off the table and you you then made the public announcement, what were the what were the key criteria, the guidelines that you, and the board adopted or or the broader community in terms of what you were looking for in a partner, and how did you run that process? Because it sounds like you, even with the lean staff, were doing most of this yourself with legal counsel, not as many others have done hiring a firm to manage that process.
1: Yeah, well, we were in a challenging cash position, so uh, and, um, and it was made more challenging by um, the lawsuits that ensued, too. So I had to work to raise money to cover our legal fees um, as we worked through this rather than raising money to cover other kinds of things. Um, you know, I don't we never really it never we we didn't take we, we continued to consider all of our options um, with respect to UC Berkeley and all of all the other institutions that we could including we considered seriously the options that some of our alumni who were aggrieved at the changes ahead they came up with some ideas and we we vetted those as just the same way that we vetted the other opportunities that came to us now the details of those other opportunities were protected by non-disclosure agreements as they normally are but we had we built a grid essentially um, with uh, with input from our faculty leadership that said that these are the things that matter to us and we um, we uh, you know we we set out each of the opportunities that was ahead of us for our board in this moment of you know the board knew they have a fiduciary obligation to the college they realized they were sort of um, working themselves out of existence if we merged with another institution and were no longer independent uh, but they wanted to make the best possible decisions so we spent a lot of time we created a, um, a subcommittee of the executive committee of the board we vetted um, all of these uh, processes uh, w- well we worked in all these processes, and we vetted each of the opportunities. And we focused on the things that matter most to mission-driven institutions, our mission. How would it best allow Mills to continue to pursue its mission into the future? How would it um, care for the people who are a part of Mills, our students, our faculty, our staff, and then the uh, East Oakland community around us, the greater Bay Area, you know, the world that Mills was intending to continue to serve. And then also, how would it conceive of and care for our campus because the campus was such an important part of the identity of the college and what was a precious asset that we wanted to preserve for the future, too. So I think those are the big things that we tried to weigh in the in the process. And we built you know huge um, uh, analyses of these and spent quite a bit of time trying to um, compare what aren't always sort of apples to apples as you have different opportunities for what you might do next.
0: And without giving specifics of the NDAs, can you say what were there other types of opportunities that were looked at be, besides merging into a larger institution?
1: Uh, yes. Um, you know, and and all of those, so, uh, you know, um, the the particular, uh, so what we ended up doing, maybe it helps to just say what we did and then maybe what we didn't do. So we merged into Northeastern University um, with a deal that is for the life of Northeastern as well as for the, 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 the new life of Mills College as a part of Northeastern University. So Mills, continues to be a college um, with the name and the campus that it has, but now it is part of Northeastern University. Um, All of the the students have an opportunity to earn degrees without any increase in costs. Um, If they have to take more courses to earn the degree that they thought they would earn at Mills, those those classes are fully covered uh, through uh, financial support from Northeastern. Our, Our faculty who had tenure all have tenure with Northeastern, Our faculty who didn't have tenure have initially had positions and will continue to have positions. You know, most of us have faculties that are composed of a lot of different precious resources, only some of whom are tenured. So we realize we have a big faculty to reckon with. And we also work to ensure employment, continuous employment opportunities for Mills faculty who weren't tenured either at the Mills campus as part of Northeastern or at one of Northeastern's other campuses potentially. And then um, for our staff, everybody's guaranteed a job for at least a year, uh, but given the, the hiring and the expansion that's um, that we anticipated, we thought it would likely be much longer than that. Um, so that that was sort of the that's where we ended up. Um, you know, the names of the buildings stay the same, the um, but the programs don't remain, and that's a, a, a challenge. You know, some students couldn't get exactly the degree that they wanted. Northeastern had virtually uh, had some kind of pathway for every single degree that Mills offered, but not. Not the same names and um, not the same degree requirements for everyone, so that that it wasn't it wasn't exactly switching out um, in uh, in the way that and some people wanted a Mills College degree rather than a Northeastern degree. So you know the Mills College at Northeastern degree is not what all of our students wanted, but but in general um, uh, they all had an opportunity to continue, and we found most students wanted to. Um, and I left uh, you know a few months ago now, so I don't know how it's playing out, but um, you know the, ultimately how the merger plays out will you know will, will, uh, will become clear over a relatively long period of time, you know not just in this initial transition period, but in the long term. Uh, the other opportunities uh, really required greater um, financial wherewithal from mills or uh, uh, you know opportunities that wouldn't have preserved the mission of the campus as well. Uh, more online rather than more, um, uh, you know, residential programs. A narrower scope of programs uh, without a sort of global reach, uh, rather, and and more, um, you know, uh, a, a shorter list of potential programs rather than, or a um, a particular focus that didn't represent the breadth of what Mills has been um, in the past. So the. So it had to do, the the differences in the opportunities were about the extent of financial support, the employment opportunities, uh, for the faculty and staff, the, uh, the opportunities for students to complete their degrees and continue to study, and then the long-term future of the institution in terms of what the programs would look like. Because absent a large university with a set of programs that Mills had pretty diffuse and broad, you know, dozens of undergraduate programs, dozens of graduate programs, um, a larger institution gave us the opportunity to place all of our students into pathways to success and degrees rather than having a few of them um, and not the rest. And we also built out degree pathways to other institutions to at least 14 different, um, you know, uh, because we realized it w- wouldn't be best for all the students to stay at Mills after it became part of Northeastern. And so we helped students make transfer decisions, too, if they wanted to.
0: Um, so it sounds like with those criteria you had, you, you met virtually all of them in terms of the, the preserving the key stakeholders, continuing the role of the campus, continuing the mission. Um, was there any consideration given, because it sounds like one of the key things was in terms of not being a separately accredited institution? Did you look at an affiliate model as well as a full merger? And was there a reason why it was decided the full merger made more sense?
1: We did. It's primarily financial because the um, the uh, the extent of the financial needs of the campus, the deferred maintenance challenges, along with the um, immediate need for operating expenses uh, to cover operating expenses for the year that um, that uh Mills is in right now um, and also the year that mills was in prior to the uh, to the realization of the merger um, we anticipated running a big operating deficit as we as we you know limped out of the pandemic to be honest and so being able to to keep people employed during that period of time and keep students on track to their degrees was not assured, you know, given the resources that we had at the beginning of that academic year when we perfected the merger. So um, we very much, uh, that that was the difference with the affiliation um, and and sub merger models was that we wouldn't have had access to the um, the liquidity that we needed in order to continue our operations to actually realize the merger. And the realization of the merger was slow because of the highly regulated nature of higher education. It just takes time to walk through all the gates that you have to walk through and time is money in those situations. So not being able to do anything quickly makes everything more expensive in these kinds of uh, transactions.
0: Um, and obviously, one advantage of Northeastern that Berkeley didn't have is that it's a private institution. Um, I, I had the pleasure to talk with uh, their – not the president you worked with, but the prior one who had, had really raised their uh, national rankings. Um, and, but, but their history is very different from Mills in some respects. The co-op program, obviously very well-known. So clearly, they were they had the resources and were willing to to meet the criteria you had. But another big part of making these work is cultural fit and feeling like the values the organization. So can you say a bit about, you know, how how did you interact with their leadership? How did the boards to convince you that they would be not just contractually what you were looking for, but the right kind of steward for for Mills going forward?
1: Yeah, you're right that that's so important. Um you know the the global aspirations of Northeastern and its incredible growth trajectory um, made it uh, made it feel and um, uh, like a good fit for the kind of impact that Mills wanted to bring to the world. Many had long wanted Mills to be more international in character. Yet international admissions is a competitive space that requires resources to recruit and uh, long term relationships, and the the particular sort of. Uh, um, Mills Mills reputation worked for and against it in many ways uh, in that in those markets too but the fact that northeastern was already global had such aspirations there and actually had experience in expanding to other campuses most notably London so northeastern has three campuses with significant numbers of undergraduates right now in addition to the co-op students who are studying in hundreds of countries all over the world but the London campus they had um, essentially acquired um, a, 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 a private, liberal arts college and made it um, the new college of humanities of North of Northeastern. And they had a significant number of undergraduates there next year. If, if, if the last um, intelligence I had on this is correct, there'll be students who, who start, their Northeastern education with a semester at Mills in Oakland and then a semester in London. And then they'll come to Boston uh, for the balance of their undergraduate education. So Northeastern was already building a network of global campuses. They had experience in this and we fit well into that. Um, They also were... um, uh, th- th- they were interested in the uh, the equity that has characterized Mills, certainly in the years since the strike in 1990. And the imperative for equity is really everywhere right now. It's actually important to just about every institution in a way that it wasn't just a few years ago. Um, but Northeastern cares about that. And that's a part of, the, of what Mills could bring, that kind of commitment. They recognize that in terms of you know, welcoming our transgender community, um, having a a population that had the racial demographics that reflected the state of California. It's a very different group of students than what uh, had been at the, you know, the other campuses of Northeastern, including their primary campus in Boston. Um, So it did seem like a good fit. And Northeastern uh, had the, um, the wherewithal to to join us in the merger conversations, the partnership conversations, because we weren't sure what the form would be when we started them, in a way that demonstrated a lot of respect for our community that made a difference, um, and I, I can't I can't tell you how much that matters when the leadership of the institution recognizes that. Uh, the faculty and the staff and the students, the alumni, the communities that you're bringing with you, they, they want to be respected and understood in this, even, even as you realize it's a huge institution with a lot of resources coming to an institution that's facing challenging circumstances, but has a lot of pride yet. And I think that Northeastern managed that process um, in a very positive way for our people.
0: And How close was the model you ultimately adopted to what they had done in London? Was that a template for how it played out? Because they also, they had some presence already in the Bay Area. They had satellite locations that they've created around the US. So I'm curious, was this a new model for them? Or was it basically saying this worked in London, we're, we're doing something here that fits Mills?
1: It was so different, to be honest, and they resisted the idea of a template, and I think they were right in that regard. And and actually, most of us don't like being, um, you know, put into um, into slots. And uh, and that was actually helpful. Also, we're just such a different institution. Um, the um, the accreditation, the uh, the the scope of the programs that we had, the regulatory environment, um, just so different than what had happened in London, and the you know, the size of this merger was, was, um, you know, this is a large transaction. I mean, uh, uh, different than what had happened, um, in London too. I think that the experience was a helpful one, um, for them. And we certainly spent plenty of time talking to the folks at the new college of humanities in London so that we would understand better. You know, we had people to talk to with whom Northeastern had worked over a period of time. And, um, uh, you know, there's always someone who is unhappy about most things. Uh, so it's not as if there was no one we spoke to who had negative things to say, but overwhelmingly on balance, uh, there was a sense of genuine investment um, in the in the institution, and uh, and an openness to innovation and a pace of, of change. And um, uh, you know, listening to the the audiences that are out there, I mean, Northeasterns. Northeastern's moving, if if higher ed moves at a glacial pace, um, you know, northeastern is moving at the climate change glacial pace now i mean they have they have really uh, changed the length of time and uh, increased uh, they've raised the bar on how fast you can get things done and also how much you have to listen to your students and to the employers for whom they work um, the co-op model that you mentioned and the emphasis on experiential learning that has has long characterized northeastern that's an unusual thing to marry with the extent of their research enterprise and yet they have done that and it's all to the better of the institution and the experience of those students so so I think that those those things convinced us because we had an emphasis on community engagement. We had an interest in experiential learning. We had an interest in uh, global education and uh, cross-cultural opportunities. And Northeastern was actually doing all those things in pretty powerful
0: ways. Um, so it sounds like, you know, a lot of common DNA there and, and commitments and values. But you were dealing with both the financial pressures the 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 fact that you had a pandemic going on that was adding to it and you had the additional challenge that you're different accrediting bodies right different states that you were operating in so in 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 that with the t- clock ticking w- negotiating all of those without other than legal counsel without outside help can you talk about how you were able to negotiate all the different approval processes you needed what what was the most challenging aspect of that and and was that something where northeastern was able to really help because of their 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 prior experience yeah
1: i you know the um, I, I never felt like we were um, we were missing resources that we needed to make good decisions, and our board wouldn't have been satisfied if they thought we needed more information or help to make these decisions. Um, Northeastern did invest a lot in making the processes run, and um, and they in terms of accreditation, uh, they're in good standing with their accreditors, Neche, the Northeastern um, uh, Higher Education Accrediting um, Group. And they they worked to move that as quickly as they could. And we, we would have actually been able to go faster, but for the litigation that slowed us down. Uh, literally, we had a judge issue an injunction. That was the low point of all this. When a judge, you, you never know what will happen when you get to court. And a judge issued an injunction that paused our uh, merger negotiations at a time when if they had, uh, if they had actually stopped it, we we would not have been able to continue. We we would have entered into an immediate um, closure. And as as you probably know, although I definitely didn't realize until I was in the middle of this the lack of um, workout protections for higher education institutions leaves us in a very challenging place when we faced financial peril, because we don't have the option because of the Department of Education and our receipt of, um, of federal funds um, and the particulars. Uh, we don't have workout provisions, meaning that if we end up in a difficult place financially, we can't take refuge in a, an orderly process. We really are um, are. are are we would have been, we would have been forced to do it ourselves, which essentially makes a lot of money for lawyers and a bad, a bad set of circumstances for everybody else. So that was the, that was the worst point. Um, because, um, the, the uh, those who didn't understand the merger or Mills' financial situation, um, they they convinced a judge to issue an injunction. It didn't last very long. We eventually moved past that. Um, it was momentary, and Northeastern was steady through that, and uh, you know, and continued to um, uh, you know didn't didn't um, didn't step away from the deal when we hit those kinds of challenges. Um, but but we. Um, the accreditation piece—they did most of the accreditation work. Um, on our side, we were essentially sunsetting all of our programs. So our task on the accreditation side was providing the information to Northeastern so that they could work with their accreditors, and then keeping our accreditors, WASC, and I'm still a WASC commissioner, um, the Western, uh, you know, accrediting group. We we just had we had to keep them in the loop so they knew what was going on. But they were not going to continue to accredit these programs into the future because. That WASC accredits institutions rather than individual programs. So once we were no longer an independent institution, we actually couldn't be accredited by by WASC because um, uh, you know unless Northeastern wanted to join WASC, which would have been an especially heavy lift, um, given their existing relationships with their primary accreditor. Um, so that, that's how, that's how the accreditation pieces worked out the department of education. Our council primarily handled that, you know, in, in conversation, we, we worked with the California attorney general, we worked with our, um, uh, we, we worked with our, our local um, elected officials, uh, we worked with the, the state folks in the financial aid group, we worked with the California Teacher Accrediting Group, you know, we, and we had existing relationships with all of those. So, you know, it does help to already have um, a sense of the, the offices that you deal with and then um, be able to, to build the new relationships that you need as you as you move into this uncharted territory.
0: And obviously there are always gonna be people dissatisfied when such a major change is occurring, but. But what, what would, was the basis that would lead a judge to issue an injunction to, to pause it? That seems like it's not a step I'm aware of in, in other transactions like this. And I, I'm not sure what the legal basis would be given how you had were pursuing every option to continue the mission.
1: Yeah, your instincts are correct. Um, it was um, it was really based on uh, the fact that it was um, a trustee who was suing us. So we have an unusual board structure that is that actually grew out of the strike in 1990, where we had essentially four designated trustees rather than regular trustees. And those trustees um, belong to our alumni association, but also were trustees of the college. Now, the fiduciary obligation of the they were they had access to all the information, all of the decision making. They had votes. um, You know, they're full fledged trustees of the college, but they also have this dual relationship with an independent alumni association. That creates some challenges, uh, um, and um, and those challenges, uh, you know, um, exploded in the lawsuit. That initially four trustees signed on to a lawsuit that demanded additional information from us. Um, uh, that said they didn't have enough information to make the decisions that they were making. And so the judge's decision, in a short time, it was only one trustee. And then that one trustee persisted in the lit- litigation for many months um, in the, uh, that we continued to um, run up legal costs and try to reckon with this. But the judge, because California law um Gives a trustee or a director of a corporation um, access to a lot of information that they might want. It insisted that, that um, we, uh, we provide more access to information. You know, some of which they, they asked, the, the request was for things we had certainly already provided, but the trustee didn't feel we had provided. That was our opinion, um, but the trustee didn't think that it had been provided and also required that we produce new documents, um, and, uh, things for the request. So that was an additional administrative burden going on during this time. So, um, that lasted quite a while, but we, um, so the court ordered us to produce a a tremendous amount of additional information, um, which, um, like i said most of it we had actually already provided but you might you might have been through this the process of actually the court supervised the when the lawyers are supervising the provision of information it it's very expensive to provide all that stuff but we but we did that and they, I guess the idea was that they would find some new information in all that avalanche of materials that would let them know there was an option ahead of us that we were obscuring. And that didn't happen. Um, there wasn't anything uh, that we were obscuring around that. And so we were able to, to move ahead and the, um, the lawsuit went away, but much later than what we would have liked. And it was it was personal. They named, they named me personally. They also named many of the, several of the college officers uh, or vice presidents, and they named individual trustees in this. And it was very difficult for us to manage that the the whole litigation process during this time.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a hard enough process as it is without a division within the board and a, a suit there. So uh, kudos to you in making it through all of that. As you look back on it, not just the west Northeastern deal that ultimately came, but also the, the other work that you did in looking at all the options, is, is there anything you would have done differently in how you approached it?
1: I would go faster. <laughs> um, I think that the um, the length of time uh, is really difficult on the people who are most affected by it, and the lack of certainty uh, that comes with that length of time. Um, it's hard for all of us to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty, even as it's just a feature of the world that we the worlds that we all move and live in. Um, but if we had been able to move more quickly, um, it would have been, uh, I think, better. It would have been, it would have shortened the um, the discomfort and the amount of time, um, or, or the you know that sort of volume of, of challenge for people. Uh, but you know that's at odds with the imperative to communicate and to help move people along with you. So, but that's if I could have, I would have, I would have, well, I would have and, snapped and, my fingers.
0: And, and you don't control being sued and having to deal with all of that at the same time and everything, right? Um, You know, I think uh, what what you went through um, and what we're going to see with alliances, mergers of different types, it seems like with the demographics, particularly in the Northeast or the Midwest, um, we're going to see more of this. Do you have, beyond speed, other advice you would give to folks who are looking at potential uh, deals like this one? You
1: know, I think everyone is different. And I I think that, you know, institutions are really distinctive places with um, and uh, I think that um, I think that being able being willing to think about new models is hugely important and not to be um, restricted by what's been done in the past or you know, what, uh, and it's very tough. Higher ed has not been all that innovative structurally over time. And I think it's time for us to consider doing that. I, so I would, I'd recommend that people really think about what their mission is, what kind of impact they want to have, and then figure out what's the best way to have that impact. It may not be the way in which we had been doing it in the past. Um, and I, uh, so openness to, to different possibilities, um, and, uh, you know, and communicating all the time. I mean, it would have been worse had we not communicated as much as what we did. It was very difficult for us, but it always was going to be hard to make this kind of change at Mills actually. Um, uh, And as it is at most institutions, but particularly at Mills College, you know, and I think that you can't, we wouldn't have been able to do it at all if we hadn't communicated a lot during that time. So, you know, being open to different possibilities and, you know, finding ways to come up with ideas that are innovative, that aren't always, you know, there's a lot of great ideas within the people who are on your campus, but we get kind of settled. And, um, you know, if you're just looking around the four corners of your campus for ideas, it's uh, it's probably not enough. And being a college president is hugely consuming. So those four corners can keep you awfully busy as you not only take care of that space, but you take that campus and those, that mission to all the people you want to support that college outside of it. You're not always listening for the new things that are happening and that what what might be possible. So I trying to find a way to be curious and open to those different opportunities would I, I think be a good idea.
0: And, and as you just mentioned, Beth, I mean, being a college president these days is a challenging job no matter what, but all of the other additional things you had to deal with layered on top of that. What, what, what were the prior experiences? What were the capabilities you had that enabled you to cope, to, to manage the stress and other things that you were going through over this extended period?
1: Well, I had a lot of help, honestly, David, and I wouldn't have been able to do it without that. Um, you know, um, it was harder on my wife than it was on me, sometimes on my kids on our um, you know, the protests outside the house and the flyers and the personal attacks and the you know, ads they'd take out in the newspapers and things like that. It was harder on other people than me. I'm I'm pretty focused. I'm very outcomes, you know. I I I, I was interested in where we could get to, and I felt confident we could get there, and I was really most focused on what might prevent us from getting there? So, so my job right till the point when I was sure the merger would be realized, which, you know, in some ways isn't quite until the actual date, but in other ways it became much clearer. As we got closer, time went on, litigation subsided, the cash position seemed secure. We continued to meet all the gates that we had to accreditation, then regulatory approvals came through, you know, which is, it's a long time. I mean, it was a, you know, eight month process, but as we went through that, it got, we we got much closer. Um, And so I felt uh, calmer and more confident about that. But I was worried, you know, we were looking at cash like every week. Um, and, uh, uh, it, it was, it was, it was very much, um, not a done deal, you know, until, until close to the realization of the merger. Um, but I, you know, so I had support from my family and, um, I remember back when I first became, um, a Dean at, in a law school, one of the students said to me, you know, what keeps you up at night? And I, I thought, you know, nothing keeps me up at night. If things keep me up at night, this is not the right job for me. So, so I guess some of it is just an ability to set things down. And I think that I have been uh, lucky enough to find that. Um, I had, I had great support from our board. I had great support from many others across the college. Um, but really when you get attacked, it's just you that's out there. I mean, you know, uh, other people, um, they might want to support you and they, they'll they support you privately, but I never had, you know, faculty stand up in meetings and, uh, uh, you know, sort of shout down the rest of the, um, you know, we had a vote of no confidence for me and for our, 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 our provost. It was, it was, um, I, it was at a difficult time. People weren't happy with the outcome. And I think that not taking it personally and, um, and realizing that many, many others do, many people do understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, but they can't or choose not to, to uh, publicly state that at different points in time, um, which I, I understand and, and try not to blame them for that too. I guess that's a part of it. But, uh, and then, you know, I didn't think that I would stay forever at Mills. I never thought that actually, I wanted to find a great solution for Mills. And I wanted, um, I wanted to be, uh, you know, I wanted to be the right president for Mills at the time that I was there. And uh, so starting to look beyond it. And, uh, you know, that was helpful to me too, as, as we got closer to the end.
0: And just wanted to wind up with that. So, so in looking beyond it, you've you've ended up in a in a really exciting role as as the the director of the 9/11 Memorial and Museum. Can you say a little about how that came about and what was it that attracted you to to this position?
1: Yeah, you know that like most of these things, it it, um, it it came to me. I wasn't really out there looking for it, um, and I. Uh, but I was really excited as soon as I saw it. Um, I, You know, you get a lot of um, pings from people who are looking for leaders in uh, inst- different kinds of institutions. I had not been uh, focused on the museum world at all. Um, but I have uh, stayed close to the military, um, you know, uh, uh, the world of military service that I left long ago. And I was curious about this chance to get close to it again. I was curious about the chance to come back to the East Coast, um, which I, uh, where I, not far from where I grew up um, and where I had had family. It surprised me that I'd been in California for 15 years at the point at which I was (laughs) beginning to leave California. You know, that happens to us too. You know, you're suddenly, you've been a place for a longer time than you thought. Um, and in terms of education, this felt like just such an amazing educational mission. I mean, yesterday, for instance, we had, you know, uh, we, we had 6,000 people in the museum. We, we have, and the museum is an amazing uh, um, site of transformation and learning. It's not like a college. Um, but in one day, yesterday in the museum, I had as many people in the 9-11, the National 9-11 Memorial on the plaza and the museum like a seven-story skyscraper, um, into the ground, below the level of the plaza. I had as many people in the museum yesterday as uh, we graduated during all the time that I was at Mills, six years. So so it's, you know, this is a chance to have a different kind of educational impact. And I find New York um, seductive and intriguing, and I'm sort of falling in love with the city again while I'm here. Uh, I love the chance to learn that. And I think that in terms of having an impact... 9/11 is a time was a day of unimaginable loss that uh, that few were prepared to reckon with and um, is is almost indescribable. But it's not only the incredibly terrible acts that humanity is capable of, but also the resilience and the response that people are capable of. And that's really what this place is about. The fact that the memorial and museum were ever built is a miracle. We could talk about that in another podcast. The Lower Manhattan has such a deep and fascinating history in terms of how it's been rebuilt and built over the years and our memorial museum have connections to some of the um, you know most innovative and most um, impactful industries you know in the in in the world actually right here in New York. So uh, this morning I was out on the plaza with our security guards. You know the security of this place is pretty unbelievable, as you would guess, because you know we we um, we don't want uh, anything to happen again, similar to what happened um, on September 11th. 2001. So, so, you know, it's, and, and as we move towards the 25th anniversary, we're most interested in how we can reach the people who didn't actually experience this. I have a lived experience of 9-11. You have a lived experience of 9-11, but you know, most of our students, you know, our students today, they, they, they don't, um, yet there's a lot for them to learn from that. And so that part is exciting to me about
0: this, this kind of position. Well, I would love to follow up with you on that. As you may know, we're right next to the tree of life synagogue and we're working with them in partnership in the holocaust center to think about its rebuilding with a similar type of mission to 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 create something positive out of the the tragedy that happened so i'm sure there are a lot of lessons to be learned from from what you've done with the memorial and museum
1: you know, David, that's a really exciting part of the convening power of this as a national, um, you know, global institution, really. Um, this we, we give graphs from the survivor tree, which is a tree recovered from the disaster and the destruction that is on our plaza now. And we give graphs of that tree um, to communities that suffer terrible acts of violence every year. And this year they went to the Ukraine to... Um, To to the Miami, Florida, um, you know, condominium collapse, and then to Buffalo, New York, with the terrible uh, racist shooting, you know, that happened there. So there's just there's all and there's um, as you know there's no end to these kinds of tragedies. And the Tree of Life, um, you know, uh, catastrophe is another example of that. And I think that our our team here has really learned a lot about how to help support people and guide them through the process of reckoning with how we remember that and how we work to try to not end up in that situation again to the extent that's possible.
0: Great. Well, Beth, thank you so much for taking so much of your time and and being so forthright and sharing all of your experience. Really appreciate it and wish you the best of luck with this new role.
1: Thank you, David. I appreciate the chance to be here. Take care.